Hey everyone, you're listening to the 107 Podcast, where we get together every fortnight, and sometimes more often, to talk about technology, business, and the humans in it. I'm your host, Ivan Stegic. My guest today is friend and colleague, Rob Dalton. Rob is president of Dalton Brand Catalyst and has been leading that company in one form or another for the last 20 years. He is a speaker, an author, and he refers to himself as a brand therapist in his work at Dalton Brand Catalyst. I'll be asking about that moniker later. We've worked together on projects for shared clients, and 107's first brick-and-mortar office space, back when that was a thing, was a sublease from Rob. It's been a long time. He's also imitated a velociraptor in that office, enamoring himself to my then three- and four-year-olds as that dinosaur guy in Dad's office. (laughs) Hey, Rob. Welcome. It's going to be fun talking to you today, I think. Well, thank you for being here. I feel I I should roar instead of speak back to you. (laughs) I actually had roar in the podcast notes for a moment, but I took those out because I wasn't sure either. (laughs) I still do the dinosaur thing. Yes, and I'm sure that my now teenage kids, when they see you, will ask you to do that if, if, if the opportunity arises. Yes. Instead of funny ha-ha, it would be more funny peculiar to them. <laughs> well, they still refer to you as that guy in the office who does the dinosaurs. So. <laughs> oh, good. That makes me feel yeah. good. Well, when I, when I think of you, though, I think of a well-experienced, well-versed professional who cut his teeth in the advertising industry, uh, kind of in the 80s and the 90s. You've often talked about the Mad Men era before, um, when we used to you know, have coffee at the ping-pong table in the office. I don't think I ever asked you, though, what did you actually want to be when you were growing up? I love this question because it gives me a chance to honor somebody. Um, I, I was not a great student throughout my school career. And about the time I was going to graduate from Southwest High School in, in Minneapolis, um, my prospects were pretty grim because uh, I was not really college material. But in, in spite of basically across the board pretty bad grades, I got good grades in English and in art, and I loved playing guitar with my friends, and, you know, life was good. It's just that I wasn't on my way to a career that would probably be above minimum wage. But about a month before graduation, my English teacher, Sarah Sexton, started the class with a series of questions And I can't remember them verbatim, of course, because that was many, many years ago. But she would say stuff like, who thinks that they would love to paint a soup can and become famous for that? Or who thinks they would like to create the next Pink Floyd album or after the gold rush? And a bunch of hands go up. And who would like to author the next Breakfast of Champions or, you know, pick a novel from that era. And more hands went up. And who would like to be, you know, the the coolest photographer in the world? Who would love to make movies? Who wants to make the next Godfather? And she got everybody in that room raising their hands, including me. And she said, all of those things, you can't all be Neil Young and you know, all these Ansel Adams and Andy Warhol, because that's a, those are crazy long odds. 
But if you raised your hand and you want to do those creative endeavors, you could go into advertising. And that was a life-changing sentence for me where I had no place to go after high school. And that sentence gave me this idea that, you know what, I love all of the things, all the creative things she was talking about. But back in 1973, that wasn't an attractive, uh, that wasn't what colleges were looking for, I'll put it that way. And I went to a technical college that happened to have like one more opening um, and started just a couple weeks later. A couple weeks after graduation, I was back in school learning to be an ad guy. And so I, I didn't think about it growing up, but that moment where Sarah Sexton sort of brought these questions to the, to the table, it was like, oh, I absolutely have a place in this world. It's just that I'm, I'm, a, I'm a, sort of a born to be a creative changed, you know, like I say, it changed my life. What kind of, what kind of art were you interested in at the time? Um, you know, I, I really did love pop art and I, I wasn't an art student per se, but I would say that, and again, for those of your, uh, listeners who are a little older, we as high school kids would collect album covers and basically, I mean, you know, a lot of my friends have framed album covers on their walls, but so much of my exposure to art was through, was through music and through those album covers. Did you paint? Um, yeah, actually I did. I, I love doing watercolors. I, I never considered myself a really good artist. I, I became a good artist when I was in school. One of the first things that came out of one of those teachers' mouths were, we're not going to teach you how to draw, we're going to teach you how to see. Mm. And it was, it was profound. I mean, it was all these things were just hitting me on an almost daily basis that I love this business, I love all of the aspects of it, and I love the way creative and critical thinking work, and when you work together with people, it's incredibly satisfying. It really is. It's all about the people at the end of the day, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. It really is. And I've had a, a, such a, a an amazing career being able to collaborate with people like yourself and um, just kind of, you know, again, music writers, film producers, amazing talent. Um, it's just been, it's just been a gas. So you spent some time in, uh, I think you said technical school and then you got your first job thereafter. Where, where was it at? Um, my first job was at a studio called Don Bean Studio. <laughs> In fact, it was on the third floor of an old building near downtown, and you walk up the side door, and he had painted a beanstalk that started at, <laughs> it started at the ground level. And on the ceiling, walking up like about 50 steps, you just followed the beanstalk to the top of the studio. And uh, we all worked up in an attic, about seven of us. And I would guess that would be the mid to late 70s then. So right, so that would be right after the kind of the Mad Men period that was, you know, you see Don Draper on TV and then that evolves into the 60s and 70s. And so it's kind of like, would you say that's the, the kind of the heyday of the advertising industry or? The Mad Men era was really about manipulating people and really, really bad behavior. <laughs> 
And my, my teachers at the technical college all came from the Mad Men era. And they, they would come in and long for the days where you could drink three martinis at lunch and somebody would like tape a, a marker to your wrist and set you up in your chair to make it look like you were still working. <laughs> and, Jeez. And, and, they, and they just bemoaned the fact that those days were over. About the time I got into the business, it had transferred into a serious business. Mm. And you couldn't you couldn't just sort of work the mornings and be you know hung over all afternoon. That those that those days were kind of gone. That said, the culture didn't die off right away. You were still expected to go out you know boozing it up um, more nights than not. At the end of the day, um, people didn't go home. At the end of the day, they went out for drinks with their friends. In, in the ad business. How, um, how did that behavior and that culture influence you, and how does it inform what you do today as a professional? You know, I think that it, it helped form kind of what I want out of life. Uh, you know, to make a long story very short, I was so wrapped up in the business that I, I wasn't around to, to raise my children. Mm. And, so, and I was gone so much that... Um, and we'll get into that when we maybe talk a little bit into my history, but I, I basically had to stop being in kind of playing a role like that where you just sort of hang out with your your working buddies all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but what you know, on a more serious note, I would say that a transition happened where after the Mad Men era got over, it left a bit of a void, but it was replaced with a creative renaissance. So it wasn't so much in the, by the mid-80s, by about 1985, it wasn't the lure of having drinks with your friends. It was the lure of trying to be the best agency and the best creative in the country. And, you know, I had the wonderful opportunity to work at some amazing agencies where, in fact, we all got a chance to build creative reputations that were really um, well-known across the country. But that, you know, creative renaissance sort of, I think, sort of took its course. And when people ask me, because I am older, when people say, what was it like to work in, the, in 1985 or 1990? I'll say that we honed our skills so that we really understood how to apply a story to a brand and to a product that was either exquisite or, or outrageous we learned how to avoid that stuff in the middle because we knew nobody paid attention to that. Mm. But we didn't just think like creative people. I think we thought like creative people plus trial lawyer. Because you really, if you took away the cleverness quotient, we still left our audiences with something so compelling that it was really hard to not to not engage, to not go out and buy that product. And it was an amazing way to be raised in this business. Minneapolis was the epicenter for this type of work where it was creatively brilliant. And I had the good fortune of working up and down the hallways from people that I was practically afraid of because they were so crazy smart. You were at Martin Williams and at Fallon and at Young and Rubicam. Yeah. After Don Bean, I went to um, BBDO in Minneapolis, which for for me was more of a conservative agency. I was very, very excited to be 
you know, a hot art director, and that wasn't going to happen at that time at that agency. And Martin Williams was my next job, and that was my entry into being into award show books. And uh, it kind of helped me move along to Fallon about a year and a half later. And that, um, again, we were at Fallon, we were very, very steeped in producing the very best creative that could be done. And it was, it was a fascinating time. You talked a lot about how you were creative and trial lawyer and it, and how you really had to look at exquisite and outrageous um, products. It must have been hard back then to be able to create all of this art and work and then not be able to have instantaneous feedback and to have to wait until products are actually selling more or businesses actually higher months down the line to see how effective you were. Um, I'm, I'm guessing that that was hard because in today's, in today's world, you put an ad on Facebook or Google and you can see immediate reaction and you can re- you adjust and change and there's data. I, I can't imagine what it was like creatively to wonder if you were effective or not. Yeah, it was it was a different time. Things weren't measurable, or they weren't immediately measurable. Um, sometimes I would find out from clients that you know you're still our agency because we are selling products, and if we weren't selling products, we would just fire you. <laughs> but that was so. You, so you, you know, it was like caveman times where you you got no details, and so you couldn't really course correct. You wouldn't know what wasn't... Well, it wasn't quite caveman, but it was hard to know what wasn't working and what was unless you did an A, B, or ABC test, you know, where you had different messages going out and you could test which messages were resonating. But still, it was a long wait, a long lag time from the time you launched the ad until you, until you got the response back. I, I suppose you could maybe do some sort of focus group testing you could, but there's also a downside to focus groups that anything that's not, anything is unfamiliar or anything that is outrageous or exquisite t- typically does not do well in a focus group. I'll, I'll give you an example. I didn't do this ad, but it would happen. To, uh, I think Jarl Olson was the writer of this ad when I was at Fallon, and it was for an insurance company. And insurance companies are, you know, now everybody's trying to be the funniest, you know, Geico and <laughs> Liberty, Liberty, Liberty. That. They're all I love that. <laughs> I love Liberty. <laughs> that thing gets in my head. I can't oh, stop singing it. And I'm never going to use them, but still, I love but the, them. <laughs> the earworm is wonderful. Yeah. So this is a print ad, a long copy print ad, but it was when whole life insurance became a, sort of an outdated uh, product. The headline for this ad was, your whole life is a mistake. What? (laughs) Jeez. That's the headline. Your whole life is a mistake. And so you'd read the copy and it would say, times have changed. When you bought that product, it made total sense. But here's what's changed out in the marketplace and in our our economy. And there are better ways to, you know, amass money and protect yourself. Brilliant ad. It would have... People would throw up in their mouth if they saw that in a focus group. That you go, you can't do that. You're insulting people. So you had to be careful with focus groups because they would warm up to the stuff that they're familiar with, 
And if they're familiar with it, that means people are not going to pay attention to it in the marketplace. You know, that actually reminds me of a New York Times article I just read on Oatly. You know, the the ads, I don't know if you've been seeing them around town on the bus stops and in the papers, and I, I haven't seen any online, but... They're very obscure. They're yeah. really obscure, and they're make, they kind of try to make Oatly look like it's... Like, I'm here, come and get me if you want, but they really are trying to sell their product. And it turns out it turns out oat milk's really bad for you. Like it's full of high highly refined sugars. And this article in the New York Times was saying basically the it's like the it's like the Diet Coke from twenty years ago or whatever it was. So have you seen those ads? Do you what do you think of them? I think they're self-serving. They're self-indulgent. You know, like I, you know, this is just me talking. You know, other people might love them, but I don't like aloofness. I like you can tease me with a headline, but then give me the answer. Don't make me work for it. Mm. So you know, it's just it didn't work for me because it's asking me to work too hard. Yeah. I hear you. I couldn't understand them for the longest time. And then I started talking to Susie, my wife, about it. And we're like, we don't get it either. What's going on? And then this article came out. I'm like, I'm, I'm, I think I'm with you. Don't, don't make me work too hard for those. Well, and also right now, there's a bit of, there's so much chaos going on. Our heads are mm-hmm. already spinning. Mm-hmm. I don't need superficial, you know, stuff on top of it. What do you think the most controversial client you ever had was? Well, I, I have, I think probably, I can't remember the name of them now, but they were a division of Honeywell, and they made bombs. Ooh. Yeah, Alliant, Alliant Tech. Alliant Tech Systems. Maybe that's it. And I think they, they maybe na- make more navigation devices and things like that now, but at the time they made bombs, and I was still very young in my career, and um, I just did what I was told, sort of. Mm-hmm. And another, and then when I went on my own after I left Fallon, I freelanced for several years, and I would go to different agencies across the country, and I didn't know what I was walking into. Um, you know, the beauty of building a national reputation is people want you and they hire you, so that was great. But oftentimes I would show up in New York or you know name the town. And they say, here's the project. Uh, one of them was for, from a telecom company. And they said, we need to let new customers know that the, the rates have gone down a lot from maybe a year ago. So we can beat people competitively on our rates. But we need to tell our old customers, we need to get our old customers and, and retain them and get them to re-sign up for the old higher rate. <laughs> and it was another, another one of those moments where I went, I, I guess I worked on it for a few days. Yeah. But it made me want to take a shower. You know, it's like, this is just wrong. And so I, 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 remember, I remember being 35 years old, getting thrown into all these situations, which, you know, could be very exhilarating. But one day I made a decision that I was going to not work for those kind of people, not work for those kind of products, and I was going to not at all work for awards, like advertising mm-hmm, awards. Mm-hmm. And it was very liberating. 
I, I was worried, you know, I said, I'm not going to work for jerks anymore. And I was worried that, you know, I would, I wouldn't have enough work yeah. to do because there was, but then really there's not that many jerks yeah. out there. You get two, two a year, maybe. <laughs> Seriously, it was, there's a lot of really wonderful, fun people out there. But over time, you know, I've had the chance to steer my career and only work for products and, that feel good to me. And, and they are, they tend to be products that make the world a better place. And so I'm not, I'm not in those situations anymore. That's, that's great. That's that's yeah, really great. It's, it's really wonderful. So after you freelanced, did you work again for an agency, or was it at that time that you thought, okay, I have to start my own agency? It it, it really it was my working and being gone so much. Like when I mentioned earlier that I kind of forgot my kids' names, <laughs> that I decided I need to stay I home. Think one, I think one of them's Claire. Yes, one of them is Claire, and one of them is Alex. I've got it written down on a piece of paper in case you were going to quiz me. No, I, I love them d- deeply, and I have very close relationships with both of my kids. But but when they were little, I was gone a lot. Yeah. I was, And so I thought, I can't do this anymore. I'm going to stay home, and I'm just going to freelance and get what I can get right here in Minneapolis. Mm-hmm. And Target became a huge resource for me, the Target stores. And that gave me time to also develop other uh, clients. And my freelance company grew, you know, busy enough. So I felt like, okay, now I'm working full, you know, 80 hours a week again. So I hired, I hired Jennifer Russo out of Martin Williams. And she took on a whole lot of that work. And then very slowly but surely, it just evolved into a full-fledged ad agency. And you called it... It was called, I think when you were in my space, it was Dalton Advertising or Dalton Creative. Dalton Creative. Yeah. And it just sort of evolved into, you know, an eight or nine person agency. And we usually kept eight or nine freelancers going on the outside of our walls. And uh, it was really fun. It was really fun. You kind of started the agency and grew it in a way that's similar to the way that I started because I really started 107 by myself and worked until I was working 80 hours a week as well and then hired someone it's it's interesting how like sometimes the circumstances are just right for a product or a company to launch and and sometimes sometimes it's not right and i think our stories you know i love the stories about how somebody invented something out of their garage or you know, some dramatic thing happened to them where lightning struck. Our story is more of just a natural evolution, mm-hmm. but it gave us, you know, I'll speak for both of us. It gave us an opportunity to work out a lot of the bugs and learn that this is, we're in service businesses. Yeah. You're right about working out the bugs. Definitely. Yeah. And you do it at a low level with just you or you and a client and, a, and an employee. And then you're kind of ready to, you're yeah. ready for prime time after that. So so now it's a company you've evolved past having as many employees as you had a while ago, and now you call yourself a brand therapist. I'm wondering if you have a couch for me to sit on, or <laughs> what, is, what does that mean? I do. Sit down over here, and then here's a, a box of tissues in case, this gets, <laughs> in case this gets sort of sad and you get a little weepy. Um, I, I didn't call myself, I didn't name myself that. I actually had a client who called me that. And here's what happened over, over time, having done advertising that, um, you know, even though it was hard to measure some of the responses in short times, it overall was work that got traction. 
And that reputation led me to some opportunities um, where a company or two, I think the first time this happened was a company down in Mankato. And they had some issues where the, the marketing was sort of going sideways. They weren't getting the traction they wanted. And so they started creating a lot of uh, background information, branding information, and it was brand essence wheels and all sorts of um, stuff that helped them understand who their audiences were, um, what they were looking for, fears, desires, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And somebody from, uh, this is maybe 15 years ago, somebody from that project called me and said, can you take stuff on paper and show us what it looks like when it converts to a outward-facing, customer-centric message. And it was a fascinating project. I, I did it many, many times over with many different pieces of information because there's a lot of different variables that go into marketing. Sometimes it's the same message with using four different emotional triggers to deliver the message. One might be fear-based, one might be love-based, one might be power-based, one might be prestige-based. There's a lot of different ways to basically serve up an idea and I did it. The company was basically off and running. They went, okay, we know now how to focus in better on what our customers and prospects really want. And then now they knew also how to articulate that in a way that felt really good to them. And so when that project was done, the guy who hired me grabbed me for a cup of coffee later and he said, I do I do this brand essence wheel stuff all the time, but I've never seen anybody come in and convert it to something that was pretty stellar customer centric messaging. Mm. And he he suggested he goes you could you could do this for a living, and I went that is a very big gift <laughs> <laughs> because it was so much fun. Mm. You know I had been I had done hundreds and hundreds of headlines and, and layouts over the years. And this is something new. This is taking people in trouble and helping them right the ship. Yeah. And so I realized that I could take the last chapter of my career and instead of peeking at my watch, waiting for it to be over, I could totally reinvigorate it. And, it, and, and, and in doing so, one of my customers, when I showed up for a meeting, yelled down the hall. They said, Rob, our brand therapist is here. <laughs> and I went, I like that. That's so, so great. So it's, it's great when you're sitting next to somebody on an airplane and they say, what do you do? And I said, oh, I'm a brand therapist. And it's like, what? What's that? If I said I'm a brand consultant? Nobody will. They couldn't wait to get back to their book. Yeah. Yeah. That's What a great story of how that evolved. I, I just love it. Love it. There's so much luck involved, you know? Yeah, it's just so serendipitous sometimes the way these things work out. And so you have a book out. It's titled, Power Up Your B2B Branding and Make Your Competitors Hate You in 35 Days. <laughs> Which, having known you for a decade now, like that's a title that is totally Rob Dalton and especially the subtitle. like That's totally on brand for you. Did that come out of the work that you've just described and the brand therapist title that you have? I, I think so. What I didn't really mention too much, though, is when, when I'm acting as a brand therapist, 
it is really more of helping people look at different paths on how to find success again. And so a brand consultant really does look for, I'm going to find ways to get you addicted to me, and then I'm going to do the work, and I'm going to try to get this gig to go as long as possible. Mm. Brand therapy is much more of a nurturing, sort of let's find a path and equip you and empower you so you don't need me. So I want to be obsolete as quick as possible. There are companies that can pay me, you know, they can pay me $24,000 to be with them every step of the way. And I love it when that happens. <laughs> but a lot of people don't have that money, but a lot more people have $24. So I thought, I'm going to write a book that can be a really reasonable entry point into the basics of what brand therapy is about. And so that was really the motivation behind it. I am at a point in my career where not only do I want to work with clients who you know, basically want to make the world a better place, I am in a place where I can be, I can be more of a giver. And I, I, I put out a lot of LinkedIn posts that are little snippets of advice, and there's no commercial at the end of it. One series I just finished now, which is in the book, was just a series of like the six most common barriers to marketing success. And then a couple of little hacks on how to, how to fix those and how to work with those. And so the book really is a way for me to sort of pay back, give back, give back to this industry that has been so, so good to me. And how do I get the book if I want a copy of it? On, kind of on, on any online bookseller, Barnes & Noble or Amazon. Are the I think probably probably Amazon is the main the main way okay. to get it, and I think it is about I think it is about twenty four dollars. I make about seventeen cents. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's and really people and and people will say sometimes they'll say how are the book sales going because it's it's only been out for a little over a year, and I'll answer and say it's not really about book sales. It's really about you know legitimizing what I do and what I'm all about. And if I sell books, I'm a happy guy. But if I don't sell books, it's still it was still a inc- really important mission for me to put this stuff down on paper. Because in, in not that many pages, I've condensed about 40 years of, of, of a lot of it is wisdom, a lot of wisdom gained by other people, but nevertheless, a lot of wisdom in really usable form. And so the book has a lot of brainstorming sessions and how-to stuff in it. And you can you can get there without me being at your side. So that's, you know, I, my motivation, I hope, hopefully, is a little more altruistic than, than just another way to make money. And you're also speaking, you have speaking engagements now as well, right? Well, a little limited because of the pandemic, but... Exactly, exactly. But you had, you had, you had started that as far as yes. the last and time we talked. and the speaking engagement... Um, it's it's a fascinating thing to to do, to get in front of people and tell them stories, and basically, I, I don't know too many companies that feel like our marketing is getting is so much traction, and we are reaching the audiences we want to reach, and we have no issues trying to get great work through our system. It just doesn't happen that way. And so for somebody to sit and chat with me for an hour and walk away with notes of five or six things they can do when they get back to work the next day is, I think, satisfying for them and for me. Uh, I'm not a keynote speaker kind of guy. I'm more of a, 
of a workshop kind of speaker guy. I mean, I do some keynote speaking, but the mentality is more of a, can we just mm-hmm. talk? You're a therapist. You're yeah. a therapist. I am more of, I am more <laughs> a therapist. And, you know, therapy is a lot about mm-hmm. listening, but you can't do that when you're at a podium. So I, I can tell them stories that most, pe- most of the time people are nodding going, yeah, you know what? You sound like us. You sound like you know what we're going through. And then I spend a lot of time talking about you know, how to, to mitigate or to, to solve some problems along the way. Have you been able to do anything during the pandemic virtually? Yes. I, 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 in fact, the last talk that I gave, the president of the National Speakers Association happened to be in the audience. And so afterwards, and this is how this is kind of how things work. You give a talk and then four or five people come up and they want your card, which leads to, to work. So she came up after I was done and she said, I really want you to give this talk to our speakers. Every one of us kind of runs our own business. And so it was set up for me to do another speaking gig with a bunch of speakers from the National Speakers Association. Mm-hmm. And then the, the, the virus hit and everything got canceled. Mm. So I called her up and said, I have not done a completely virtual workshop like ever. Would you mind gathering up like six people? And I'm going to do this as a freebie, but what I want is two and a half hours of their time to do a virtual branding workshop, and we will get about 90% to where you need to be as far as instructional stuff. And then I'll work with each person one-on-one out of the six people to get them over the finish line. Because I think they can... It was an amazing experience. They got hugely involved. The six people met for about four or five, six weeks afterwards, once a week. Yeah, they just tore apart all of the stuff, the, all the instructional stuff. With the, with the program, I had, I had worksheets that they could download. And then I did work with the, the, the individuals later, and it turned out to have a good response. You know, It's like a way for me to... I can provide that service for a fraction of the cost and... The outcomes were really, really positive, really good. So I have proven that it happens, but I I decided I'm going to give the world a little bit of a break and not try to promote that because we have a lot of stuff on our plate. And here's something you don't know is I am moving to Denver in about three weeks. Oh, you are? Yeah. Wow. And does your son live out in Colorado? Yes. Yep. And that's really the the, the driving force. And more important than my son is my little three-year-old grandson. Oh, congrats, (laughs) Rob. Yeah, I know. He's adorable. So, you know, part of life has sort of gotten in the way a little bit, but I I wanted to get far enough along with this experiment to see if I could do um, online workshops. And I think doing it in groups of about six was really good because then they, they interacted a lot with each other. I, every one of my think felt like they got a lot of value, and, and like I said before, the price point can be really, really low and affordable for for a little a lot, a lot of smaller companies and individuals. Yeah, they say that between six and eight people is the perfect uh, size for any team. So it's not surprising that six participants in your workshop was a good size. Yeah, that's well, that sounds like a lot of fun going to. To Colorado, are are you uh, are you bringing Squeegee with? 
Squeegee moved back to London where my daughter lives. Oh, I know. Good thing I have these tissues next next to your therapy couch here because it makes me so sad. <laughs> oh my, that's the best name for a pet ever, Squeegee. Oh, I know. She's such. An, she just had a birthday a couple of days ago. Oh, that's great. Uh, I did want to ask one last question before we wrap up. And I remember when I first moved N7 into the office space um, that we shared back in 2010 and 2011, we did some work together on something called Write on Riot. And I remember laughing uncontrollably with you on all the things that came out of our sessions working together on that stuff. And I wonder if you're ever going to resurrect that. Maybe you could tell the listeners what Write on Riot is. G- give us an update. Yeah, and just so they know, the spelling is W-R-I-T-E, like you write on stuff. And during a recession where marketing and advertising kind of took a little bit of a break. um, (laughs) A little bit of a break. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. We all remember when that mm-hmm. happened. I I am not a um, sitter-around kind of person. Like if I was to meet a bunch of friends on the beach and they wanted to sit around on the beach, I'm the one that's going to walk for seven miles up and down the beach Uh while they sat. So when advertising slowed down a little bit, I stayed just as busy by kind of inventing this this idea that I had, turning it into a little company. Right on Riot is party products that you would require, you'd be required to personalize. So like, you know, those big red cups that people put out with big party for big parties, Mm -hmm. a lot of times they'll have a marker in there and you put your name on it. So my cups would have a statement on them and you would personalize it. Like an example was a New Year's Eve themed cup didn't say my name is blank it said at midnight i hope to kiss blank or at midnight i want to kiss blank and so that's how you knew it was your cup if you put it down on a table with a bunch of others (laughs) but it grew into a lot of other products and i'm really proud to say that within about 18 months of the idea we had products on the shelves of target and walmart which is pretty crazy it's it was it was an idea that was sort of a good first blush the part that you're talking about the 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 online aspect of it is every day i started my day getting out of bed brushing my teeth and thinking either there's a news item or some trivial dorky thing that i can put out there for people to respond to and just have fun with it and one of them was um i would make stuff up like a new camp up north opened and it's it's there to um, appeal to overprivileged children, rich kids. And our job is to name it. And my favorite name that was submitted was Camp Iwanaguchi. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the kind of stuff. And, and sometimes it was simple stuff like uh, dog plus Beatles song equals. And then people would write in things like Old Yeller Submarine. <laughs> You know, stuff like that. It was incredibly clever, clever people out there. But they had a chance to sort of have fun with the company. Over time, advertising got busy again. And then um, the, quite frankly, the Target and Walmart people, I I generated a lot more stuff. And everything that I felt had a little edge to it, everything, in other words, I thought was funny, they kind of killed. And so this is just a hobby thing for me. And I thought, you know, if I can't have fun with it and put out the products that I really 
like that I'll just sort of walk what, away from. What's the point? Yeah, and that's what I did. Well, good for you that you can have that kind of um, ability to do that, especially on a heartbeat project. That you you want to you want to do things that give back to the world and that are positive. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, it's been awesome talking to you and going down memory lane a little bit there and learning about um, the whole advertising industry and the history that you had and what an incredible gift that Sarah Sexton gave to you at the end of your high school career. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. It's been so fun to catch up with you, too. Thank you so much for spending your time with me. All right. Rob Dalton is the president, brand therapist, and all-around good guy at Dalton Brand Catalyst, where they help growth-minded B2B brands get the marketing they deserve. You can find them online at daltonbrandcatalyst.com. You've been listening to the 10.7 podcast. Find us online at 107.com slash podcast. And if you have a second, do send us a message. We love hearing from you. Our email address is podcast at 107.com. Until next time, this is Ivan Stegich. Thanks for listening.